1: Listening to Militantly Mixed.
0: I would like to acknowledge that the Militantly Mixed podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Chumash and the Tongva people, and I wish to pay my respects to the people of those nations, both past and present. Hey, y'all, welcome to Militantly Mixed, the podcast about race and identity from the mixed race perspective. I am your host, Charmaine, aka Mixed Girl Maine, the busiest, and super sleepiest, mixed race, bisexual, polyamorous, atheist, comic book nerd, cat mom, mask making, Gulf Coast Cosmos, comic book co-owning podcaster in this podcasting game. Uh, This is episode 118, and you'll have to forgive me for being so groggy, sleepy. Um, I just woke up from a four-hour nap, which is like the dopest thing to ever happen to me in many, many weeks. I'm so worn out. Uh, my my work life, my day job life is pretty heavy right now and it's sucking the life out of me, which hasn't happened at this job before. And hopefully it is temporary because it's for a very specific project. But between that and trying to meet my deliverables for the podcasts, which I'm late on, Gulf Coast Cosmos, which is, thank goodness I have a business partner uh, <laughs> because I don't have that for for the podcasting. I'm just exhausted. So I woke up this morning and I was a guest on the Squeezing Lemons podcast, which you would have heard about before. Episode 36, A Sense of Racial Capital in Mixedness. My guest that week was Ginger and we met each other kind of through both being podcasters who identify as mixed race people. So Ginger Show isn't necessarily a mixed race podcast. Although that does come up on her show. And so I had her as a guest back then. And um, she reached out to me to be a guest on her show, specifically this episode, because we wanted to talk about what Kamala Harris, uh, like what's the impact or feelings that we have as it relates to Kamala Harris as mixed race people. So she and her co-host Jason and I sat down and had a conversation. And we had a really good time. It was it was a really, really good conversation generally, but also in terms of what we discussed related to Kamala Harris. But also, I just like to shout out Jason because he he is the first time a person has ever read back or or um, I don't even know what to call it. Not mimicked, that's not correct, but whatever. Read back my, the little intro I do at the beginning of the show about being the busiest mixed race podcaster, blah, 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 blah. And, um, and he, he did it on the show and it just gave me a big old smile. I really enjoyed it. So I don't know at the time that I'm recording this, what day that's going to air. It may have aired by the time this show goes up on Tuesday or it'll be that same week or whatever, but. Keep an eye on the social media so I can let y'all know when it's up and I'll put the link up. Or you can just go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening to your podcast and subscribe to Squeezing Lemons so that you can listen to their show. But it was a lot of fun. It was a really good conversation and I had a blast. So, yeah, we finished that. That was about a two-hour conversation. Then I went to go grab some food. And while I was eating and I turned on the Netflix, I was like, I'm just going to lay down here real quick, take a little 20 minute nap, and then I'm going to get to work. <laughs> and yeah, I woke up four hours later with the screen saying, are you still watching? So the positive is that I was able to get that rest that I must have really, really needed. Uh, the negative is that it's now put me four hours behind my workflow that I was expecting to to get through today. So, you know, whatever. It is what it is. But I'm glad that I got the rest. I just feel still at the time that I'm speaking, I just still feel like way worn out. So we're gonna get there. We're gonna get there. Um my guest this week is Aaron Keller. They participate on the weekly social distancing hangouts. So I have up until now only gotten a chance to really kind of get to know Aaron through group conversation, but they've been a participant on the social distancing hangouts for for a while now. And we finally got a chance to sit down a couple weeks ago and have this discussion. So it was really the first time I've gotten to know him on a one-to-one basis at all. And he's also the author of the upcoming book, Marginal Eyes. A Biracial American Struggle for Identity in a Nation of Black and White. And this is going to be a memoir. You can check out where he is in the process and the progression on MarginalEyesBook.com. And uh, there's also a Facebook page, a Twitter and Instagram as well. I believe the stage that he's at now is really just shopping the book around and um, you know continuing to do edits. But as far as I know, it's completely written. And um, we got a chance to talk a little bit about that, but mostly about his own experience as a as a biracial man. In terms of, you know, how location and how the people that you're surrounded by or your relationship to your parents sort of dictate where you are in your identity at different stages in your life, which I think is a thing we all go through, um, you know, depending on what's the majority population of people in the area you grow up might determine how you identify as a mixed race person, whether or not you like or dislike one of your parents. Um, that sometimes is a deal for me. Um, how you identify racially, who your coworkers are, uh, where in the world you're living at the moment, you know, may affect um, how you identify and what is sort sometimes the most safe identity to hold in a space. So it was nice to have that conversation, get to know Aaron a little bit better. It's, it's also weird to kind of get to know someone after you've kind of known them for a few months too. <laughs> um so it was nice though to ha- to have that conversation. Um but yes, please check out marginaleyesbook.com to stay up on where Aaron is in the progress of his memoir publication, I guess the publication of his memoir. Um and of course if you want to get to know him further, you listen to this episode. So we're gonna go ahead and jump on over into that. Uh, don't forget that Militantly Mix is a fan sponsored podcast. It is because of the support of listeners that I'm able to keep this show going. And throughout uh, this. Coronavirus impact. Um, there has definitely been hits to um, the contributions and everything like that. But so far, we still managed to be able to keep the show going. We are hitting a point at which, though, that it's it's dropped significantly enough that it's going to be tough to maintain at the level that I'm normally maintaining. So I'm going to start talking about it again a little bit. Hopefully, find a another way to start getting funding, whether it's um, little grants, if I can get them or um, finding some kind of way to advertise in some way, shape or form. We just don't have enough downloads on a weekly basis to be eligible for regular sponsorship. So unfortunately for the, for the time being, it is between the listeners and the me to keep it going. And it's, it's just now on the cusp of starting to be difficult to maintain. So we'll, we'll get through it. But if you would like to be a Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash militantly mix. There's also a link in the show notes for that. And you can contribute on a monthly basis to the show as low as a dollar to as high as anything you wish. And there's different reward levels depending on what you choose. And if you would like to participate in sort of uh, one time only or lump sum or as you like it uh, donations, you can go to paypal.me slash mixed and drop some coins in that tip jar as well. All the donations to the show go back into the show. It's how I keep this going. It pays for the softwares. It pays for the hosting, it, it uh, web hosting and all that kind of stuff. It pays for all that stuff. And if there is anything extra, that is how I do advertising or extra swag and stuff like that. So every little bit that is donated goes back into the show. And other ways that you can support the show is to go to the Teespring page and purchase a t-shirt, logo shirt. Yeah, that, that's, how, that's how we keep the show going and growing. And of course, the best way to support the show is to share episodes that are meaningful to you, to other people that you think may benefit from hearing it. It is a lot different to share, regram, retweet, whatever, an episode. That is, that's a benefit some people's eyes will get on it. But when you actually send episode XYZ was important to me because of blah, 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 and I think you would benefit from it because of blah, 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 that usually actually gets a listener. So if you would love to support the show but you're not able or or don't want to do financial support that is the biggest way to support the show is to is to send an episode to someone with a meaningful description as to why you think they would want to listen to it. Um, I have heard of people doing this before and coming back or reaching out and sending me a message saying, oh, my friend sent me this episode and then I went down the rabbit hole. Um, that's usually how we get people to stay with us and listen to more narratives. And of course, if you would like to be a guest on Militantly Mix, you can go to militantlymixed.com and click on the Be a Guest button. You'll fill out a Google form. And then when I catch up in my interviews, I will go to the next people down in line and I'll start sending them messages to get them booked. Right now, I I have noticed that there have been a few more people who have popped up on there and I haven't started booking quite yet for uh, February, but I'm going to probably when I go on my work break in a week or so. So you'll start to hear from me during the holiday weeks and then we'll get you booked for February and probably up through March. So I think that's all I got for you for now. I'm really making an effort to try to keep my my intros uh, shorter than 10 minutes. But without further ado, please join me in welcoming our latest cousin to the militantly mixed family, Aaron. this is over and i am really excited to be uh joined by someone who's been participating in the weekly hangouts um that we have for military mix my guest today is aaron keller why don't you tell everybody about yourself and let's get into it
1: all right hey man i'm so happy to be here with you um what to say i don't know man from the midwest who uh Grew up in a couple of different places, a little more urban, a little more suburban, and had a couple of very different experiences with that, biracial, in terms of my racial identity. My mom is a Black, African-American, my dad's white, and um, had a lot of, you know, obviously um, very uniquely mixed experiences that went along with that. So kind of want to talk about that with you and wrote a book about it too this summer. So I spent some of my pandemic time. Uh, chilling at home Mm -hmm. writing a book about all that and giving myself a chance to you know to encapsulate that experience and share it with other people a little uh, better so yeah looking forward to Um, sharing
0: that's good so it's it's always interesting to me to meet people that are mixed where the mother is black and the father is white because most of the mixed people that i have encountered have always been the opposite direction And um, I until starting to do the show, I didn't really get to have real conversations about what changes in the dynamic when you Mm. have a black mom versus a white or non-white mom um, and a a white father versus. So, like, I get it on the Asian side because my Asian side is white and and Asian where the men are white. But on the black side, all the men are black. So let's get into it. I want to talk about it. um so so you you're chicago did you grow up in chicago or did you grow up in the midwest in general and then went to chicago
1: yeah um succinctly i guess i put um myself down as a chicagoan at at this point in my life because i've been here since 2005 okay but um but i started out uh, close to gary indiana that's where Hmm. my mom's from that's where my grandma still lives and um that was till like age 10 and then You know, through um, through age 18, when I left home, I was in a smaller town um, and more rural Indiana.
0: Mm. Rural being mixed in rural places. That's starting to come up a little bit more. It's it's interesting. It's got to be tough to be like ambiguous and different from the people that are around you and you're just like but you guys are different from me i don't know
1: (laughs) right i know that if you can take it like that that's pretty good but
0: (laughs) yeah actually that's something i'm trying to teach myself throughout doing this show is is i started hearing the common theme of i'm the different i'm the different i'm the different and i'm like no let's not do that anymore (laughs) let's reframe the way we think about ourselves and and center ourselves in our own story versus centering everybody Mm -hmm. else around us so i'm trying to Remind myself that everybody was different from me <laughs> in <Hey>. my story.
1: <laughs> More power to you I wish yeah. I wish I'd done that 20 years ago.
0: But <laughs> I mean, I, I just turned 43. The militantly mixed journey has accelerated my path that it, had I been doing this at 20, you know, I think I would have been a lot like I've always talked about my mixes. I've been very vocal about my mixes. So I feel like I was in a good place, mixness-wise, until I started pressing record and hearing other people's stories. And I was like, I don't know shit. Hmm. Like I you know I know enough I know enough about me but not not about how we all exist so I I appreciate getting to hear the stories because I see you know how how different we are in our place like where we're at within our own mixedness um yeah. with yeah. that said you said biracial as your first identifier versus mixed or multiracial or anything like that what is yeah. at your core how do you feel like you identify
1: that's a That's a question that I was wrestling a lot with when I was writing the book, especially because I haven't really sat down and done a lot of work with Mm -hmm. that. Um, I think part of that reason was that most of my years that I remembered before writing the book actually were the years that I lived in the really white town. And so um, that was a place where I was always struggling to sort of not be othered. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't really embracing identity i was more sort of struggling with how to not have an identity that people didn't feel awkward about right and so um
0: again centering everybody in your story versus centering you yeah
1: exactly that was a lot of my story and um but when i've gone back and really just sat with it and especially after this year and and sort of just opening up the topic of it's it's okay to be black you know Mm -hmm. with you know just a lot of conversations um I mean, I grew up to age 10 in a really diverse area, spending a lot of time with my African-American grandparents, and I identify more with my mother than with my father. Okay. um, Just in terms, you know, relationship and emotionally and all that. So I don't know. I mean, I don't don't throw a label one direction or the other in terms of black or white on myself, but um, I definitely generally feel more comfortable with my black family than my white family, for example. Um, Right. You know, some, so it's just an, it's an odd um, thing for me because I lived so many years in a, in a really, really white town. Yeah. And, um, you know, but I do have those roots that, you know, were really foundational
0: for me. Right. I, I find this thing that we do, especially people that look like you and I, where we're kind of ambiguous and, you know, we know we can get the head nod if people can see our whole face, but we (laughs) also know that we can walk into another space and and they won't pick it up. Um when I find that for me, growing up in the hood, I didn't know I wasn't black until someone told me. Like I didn't know that I also didn't look black to non-black people too. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't realize that. And then once I moved to the suburbs at 15, the white suburbs. um, I that's when I was like, oh, (laughs) my whole face tells a story that is very confusing to people. And, And I didn't I didn't understand that. So I had to go from being a black girl who happened to be mixed to being a mixed girl who happened to be black. Like that was that was a big part of my transition from like 15 to maybe 20 or even mid 20s. And so my knee jerk reaction is to tell people I'm black. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, also I'm mixed, knowing that my face is not telling them that I'm black unless <laughs> they are black. Um, and so I find that well, uh, well actually this is a good thing because we're both ambiguous in our presentation. I'd like to know if you feel anywhere near I feel if somebody who is mixed, who is ambiguous like us says they are one of their things, whatever it is, I'm Japanese, I'm black, whatever. I'm like, do you feel a kind of way about like, because based off of the way you feel about yourself, do you feel triggered if they have an opposite mm-hmm. reaction to if their face is similar to ours?
1: That's an interesting question. I, I haven't dealt with that, I guess, in personal conversations with people. I've dealt with it, maybe with a, uh, like a public figure who said something like that. Um, and I, I guess I, My initial reaction to it is to sort of soak in what comes after it and just pay more attention to the person and to just understand what it really means when they say it. I think that's that's what happens to me after I hear that, because as soon as that label gets thrown, it's like, why did you throw that label? Mm -hmm. Is that because it means something to you? Is it because it was supposed to mean something to the audience? Is it because um, that gives you like a sense of security in this situation, you know, like what's going on with that. Um, because I don't, I mean, I'm fine with calling myself black. Like I have no problem with that Mm. at all, but I know if I'm with a group of black people, like, I'm not just going to be like, I'm black, you know, like, Mm. like there's another context in there that, you know, so it's like, why did, what was it about you saying that that felt so comfortable or, or necessary for you to put it that way and uh, just try to understand where they're coming from with it, I guess, because it's not it's not the most self-evident mm-hmm. thing to say. Right. So
0: do you feel it, like you got there because of your writing process or do you feel like you've sort of been that way for a while?
1: No, I think before this and it wasn't, I guess, just the writing, but I, for modern, you know, myself, um, <laughs> there was that there was there was probably a lot more uneasiness with the idea of someone just calling themselves black like that. Mm. I think that it, because it, I don't know, it it felt political maybe, or it felt a little bit, um, um, you know, like they were maybe for me, at least at the time, not being as comfortable with that part of myself, pushing a button that I hadn't really been comfortable, you Mm. know, dealing with yet for myself and, um, I think just in the modern times and, you know, and then going further with writing the book and all of that, I can, I know the spaces where I feel like I identify a certain mm-hmm. way. And, um, and so I'm comfortable with people identifying differently, you know, even in different places and with people that they're around or whatever it is. So, right. um, so it's just it has a different, It has a different, it's more nuanced now. Like I have to actually stop and try to understand what they're saying. Versus before there was some discomfort with certain things.
0: Right. I I've gone through the gamut of it. I mean, I was I was so blacky black growing up that to tell me I wasn't black was really rough. Like I couldn't Mm -hmm. handle that process. And I actually going through my my sort of 14, 15, you're already trying to figure out who you are. And then on top of it, you throw in that you're mixed and people know (laughs) because they can see it. I was dealing with the that period of time where we were we um ebonics was popping up uh after mm-hmm. the term African-American was starting to be used. And I couldn't I I couldn't go that far. I couldn't go to African-American because my roots were here and my people were here and we didn't know where we were from. And I felt I I, I got so much reaction to where I when I kind of got a little militant and pro-African stuff like that, that it, it made me a is afraid the right word? I'm not sure if afraid is the right word, but it made me feel like I shouldn't be the one going out here being African-American. And then I also had African-American people in my life that were white. They were South African white. And so that was also another thing of me trying to reconcile at 14, what this means. And so I never got there. I was always black. And then I moved to a place where there was mostly white people or a little bit more diverse, but predominantly white. And me trying to figure out how to be my black ass self in that in that kind of a space, and that's when I started to kind of identify more as a mixed person. But as I grow up, it is still a and even into my 40s, it's a it's a knee jerk reaction to say I'm black and then go oh yeah, and I'm mixed until until starting the show and now you know being mixed is obviously more at the top of my conversation list because I literally have started a show about, about specifically being mixed. But I find there are moments when somebody identifies in a way that is confusing to me because of the way that I grew up that instantly I'm like tense at first until I hear, you know, what is the deal? And um, you mentioned hearing it from a public figure Uh, that kind of happened to me. I was listening to the audio book from uh, Clay Kane and he was talking about his own life and he identifies as black, despite being raised entirely by his white mother until he was a teenager. And, um, and, but it, it wasn't so much the identifying as black part. It was the not identifying as mixed part that it was in his book that made me go like, I got to think about this. So I had to listen basically to the whole book until I started, like I started to hear, oh, okay. There's context for, for this thing. There is, um, despite being light skin, he's still perceived as a black person and things like that. And so in the industry he's in, he's treated like a black person. In Mm. my case, I'm only treated like a black person by black people. I'm never treated like a black person by, um, by my white counterparts or anything. I am treated Brown. I'm just not treated black, I think specifically if that, if that makes sense. So I'm in this, I'm in this patch. I'm doing this work right now for me where I'm trying to figure out, like, as I talk to other people who are ambiguous, like me, how are they identifying? And is it really just the darker we are, we, the more clout we get? On the black side, when our faces do tell the story to a degree, it's just it doesn't tell the story to everybody. So I'm I'm interested in that. So let's get into the the um, experience of being a mixed kid that has a, a black mother and a white father and I don't really know specifically what I want to ask, except that I just want to know the things that are different from my experience of it, but I don't really know how to ask that question. Like what grounds you in your blackness through your black mother, I guess might be a place that we can start there.
1: That's a good question. So, uh, my mother is, def- I mean, if you look at her, you know, she's definitely black, you know, dark skinned woman and everything. And, um, but, uh, I don't know, it's something about so my black family is from Tennessee. They're from the South. And um they moved up to the north, you know, for family and job reasons and all that kind of thing. And my mom grew up there. But was that I, as it, part
0: of the great migration or was that um later on?
1: like a separate, yeah, just okay. their own. Like some of their family was already up here, and so they moved up uh after that. They were okay. you know, farmers in in, in Tennessee. But um and this and the farms were still there. It's just that they moved for their own reasons. So it mm-hmm. was just like a personal thing. But my mom is very, uh, she's always been a really sort of progressive person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll, I'll explain that a little bit more. But she's always been into like natural health products. She's always been into... Okay. Um, you know, she got it, her dietitian's degree and, and that kind of thing. And, okay. um, you know, she was very, she has a master's, she has an MBA and like went to DePaul University. And, you know, I mean, she worked her way through, her, her parents were pretty poor and like her, you know, didn't have a lot of money. And she worked her way through school and then, you know, she built herself. But she always, um, uh, she never really identified in conversations with me as black Mm. and she never, you know, and she didn't, it didn't seem like she tried to put herself like in black circles, you know, socially or anything like that. And so it was really my family that I was around that was black, you know, and if we'd be like in the community and going to the store and like whatever, that kind of thing. So uh, it's an interesting thing, you know, racially, obviously I'm, you know, she's black. And then I have that connection. Um, and then just for maybe kids in the neighborhood sometimes, you know, but, but other than that, she didn't really like favor a particular environment or another. She was just doing mm-hmm. her own thing. And so that was interesting um, because she didn't have the same type of, and I'm going to call it a black experience. Like she didn't have the same type of black experience that I had growing up. Okay. Even though she's, more black, you know, yeah. than I am, you know? You gotta put
0: those air quotes up. <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, I mean, yeah. From visually speaking, you know, you look at her and you say, you know, but she's hanging, but like one of her friends that she has in town, you know, is, the, is somebody who would say, um, you know, well, I don't see color. You know, I just see everybody has the same kind of thing. And like, that drives me up the wall. Like I, I can't deal with so that. Much. Right. And cause kids called me black when I, when we moved to that town where, where I grew up from age 10, kids, Mm -hmm. kids called me black, or they would ask me, are you black? You know, they were very interested Mm -hmm. in categorizing me that way. And so, um, you know, that was the experience I had as a kid and that she grew up around almost all black people. Right. And so, and, and then she just went on and did her own thing, you know, versus me. I'm like, everybody is telling me that I'm black. Okay. Like, I guess, so I guess that's
0: what I am. Right. Yeah, yeah.
1: Right. Or something like that. You know? So, so it's, it's interesting. Like my connection with her is, um, as somebody who didn't really put out like a racial identity. Mm. Um, and then, and my dad didn't really either, like he's white. So, you know, it's, uh, he just was this, this, this white guy doing this thing too and so it it was like uh uh, yeah I have her and I have that family but nobody is really like dominating the racial conversation here like I Mm. just got to figure it out you know and um and so we never really talked about it when I was growing up it wasn't Mm. something I talked to her about Um, it was just like a given that she just assumed sort of like, I'm comfortable with with who I am and my son will be too. And like, we're fine. And, you know, and later on, you
0: know, those gaps, like those mixed raising mixed kid raising gaps is, is I wish I could have identified them earlier Mm -hmm. to be able to communicate what I needed. But I hope kids now, it looks like kids now are starting to get more access to where they can start to ask those questions. But we just, I couldn't ask those questions in the night, early nineties and late
1: eighties. Like, uh, it wasn't even like a thing yeah. to ask the question. Like, yeah. Did you so think
0: I'm, it was rev- or did your parents even, I mean, you may not even know, was it at all revolutionary for the circles that they were in for them to be an interracial couple?
1: Yeah. That's something that I also was examining when I was writing the book. And um, yeah, I tried my best not to speak completely on their behalf, but just mm-hmm. from all my experience, I've asked them the question, once or twice too about Mm -hmm. if they've had like racist incidents or anything like that. And, um, my impression from talking to them and just from seeing where they grew up and everything is that they both grew up in pretty racially homogenous situations, Mm -hmm. but they intentionally moved to like very diverse situations. And so then the people that were around them didn't have an issue with it. Their families, neither of their families had an issue with it. And, um, only until they moved to the town where, you know, I lived from age 10 upwards. Was it even like sort of a thing? But at right. that point, they're working full time jobs. They, they're they not like in the community. They're not growing up there. They're, you know,
0: yeah. they're just living so their it, life. And you're the one yeah. who are feeling yeah. those things. OK.
1: Yeah, basically. So that was my experience with it is that, I mean, they would mention, you know, it was still illegal in some state or other to be, mm-hmm. you know, married, you know, back in the day when they got married. But, um, but it wasn't something that affected us directly, mm. um, you know, from, from where they were. Cause Northwest Indiana is like, you get like this push of a lot of black people coming from the South side of Chicago. And then you also got a lot of Hispanic population in that yeah, area. So. And then, you know, more of the white demographic comes from the East of there. And like, we were sort of like in between all of that, and it was more diverse, and so um, I just think that they're, you know, the people that they were around were used to seeing all kinds mm. of people, so it just wasn't really a thing for them.
0: What was your awareness about, like, your parents are different looking from each other? Besides the kids, you know, poking and prodding and things like that, did you do you have right. any memories as a as a little one of being able to identify these two different people?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I've also been thinking through that, it was more of like a cultural thing for me than a mm-hmm. than a skin color thing dealing with mm-hmm. them. My mom's family was just much more sort of open and, um, you know, warm and hugging and kissing and that kind of thing. And my dad's was more dry, like German from Pennsylvania family and yeah, my mom's, yeah, yeah. This, you know, black family from Tennessee. So, you know, that was more what I think I felt was that um that difference in the cultures than the than the colors of them but um but then when I moved you know and then when I started dealing with white people giving me issues then I think I started to really understand um that I had issues with my dad um, mm. racially you know just the lack of awareness of that right. um that part of me so that was something that came a little bit later
0: Did you feel like you had moments of sort of internalized racism as a result of having a white father?
1: Um, Yeah, you know, it's an interesting... um, This is where I get into, like, you know, I love my family. And, you know, it's, you know, and and I want to honor that part of it, too. And that's something that I did in the book, too. But then I also talked about the the realities of it. And one of the things that I said in there is I felt like... um, there are things about a lot of I'm going to call it black communities or just like, you know, I don't want to call it black culture. It's just something that's maybe been imposed by, you know, the U S on black mm. people, but <laughs> um, black, you know, things that black people have to deal with or just ways of life they've had to, to lead that my dad, you know, just can't deal with. Mm. And, you know, and he'll, you know, and I think he sort of takes my mom or her family as like the standard of what everybody can be like or should be mm. like, and oh, that's um, heavy, yeah, and that's the thing that I realized that I have an issue with, right because um, because I don't feel like that at all, you know, and, right. I, and we had family members in our family that were you know different, sort of off the that beaten path, you know right, and um and I never felt like that with them, you know, and mm. so that was something that I struggled with a bit. it was like hold up, you know, (laughs) (laughs)
0: right. It's tough not to even know that that's what's happening to you until, until you get removed from it. And you know that you're uncomfortable, you know, it like makes your tummy hurt a little bit, but until you get removed from it and, and can actually see it, I think that's probably a super common thing for, for white people who have mixed kids or mixed families is that expectation that there is a palatable type or an appropriate type of the other whatever the other ends up being mm-hmm. um and that's a that's a lot of responsibility to put on those people that you just happen to be related to um sure. in terms yeah. of performance so uh, yeah. what is what gets you from you know just your everyday errand to I need to write this book and I need to get into this stuff
1: uh, let's, let's see. <laughs> <I> was,
0: <laughs> Good question. I don't know. <laughs> let's
1: see. Let's see. I mean, I mean, I was, so there's two different levels of it. There's one that I've just had some weird things happen in my life. And I, and a few years ago, I was think maybe a couple, I was thinking about writing about that just anyway, just to talk about it. Cause it was like, wow, I went through these experiences and they were crazy and I should, you know, I should talk about that. But earlier this year, um, maybe like January, February, I was thinking about writing again. And then I just sort of put it off. I was like, what, why do people need to hear You know, everybody has a story. Like but, everybody, yeah, has who am I? you know, like what's the point of talking about all this. Right. And then June came around and, you know, it had been a Ahmaud Aubrey, and then, it, you know, it's George Floyd. And then it's like, I'm upset and I'm, you know, all these emotions are coming out. And then people from the town where I, I'm saying grew up from age 10,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, started talking about it more openly and sort of standing up, you know, being more anti-racist and that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. and I was dealing with my emotions with it and the protests were happening and all that. And I just said, you know, uh, this is something that people don't understand, you know, th- enough. And, and it's not about me. It's just about like talking about it. Mm-hmm. And so that was really what, changed that um the perspective I guess on what it was for mm-hmm. and that gave me the impetus to do it it was like i need to do this for myself so that i can encapsulate that part of my life and see it for what it really was and other people are going to benefit from hearing about it whether there are people who are going through it or have gone through it and haven't maybe worked through the same things as i have or whatever or if it's other people who just need to look and see like, this is what some people go through, you know? And so that was really where it changed from me talking about my life as if it was something, you know, valuable um, just by itself to This is a part of a community conversation that needs to happen. And it's something I need to do for my own, you know, healing too. Right. And so I'm just going to, I'm just going to do it while I have the chance and, and let, that place that stuff have its place in my life
0: and that's also kind of around the time that or at least that i became aware of maybe not that early um i became aware of you sort of in the the private group on facebook and then eventually coming over to the um to the hangouts were you mm-hmm. did you have a mixed community before you joined up with us or did were you just looking for it around that time because of yeah. the conversations that you were needing to have
1: yeah, I mean, transparent 100% that I, I wrote the I started writing the book. And I, while I was writing the book, I started looking for people to connect with. Mm. And so um, it, it it is so odd to say it. And I've said it a couple of times now in different conversations. But I have maybe before, you know, meeting you, meeting other group of folks that we're talking with, I've maybe like actually spoken with outside of my brother, you know, like... Mm-hmm. Two or three people of mixed racial background. I'm talking about black, white, mixed background right. yeah, specifically. Um and I can remember being in Chicago just like maybe it was five years ago, and I ran into a woman who was obviously biracial, like in a bar, and we were talking about it, and I was like, wow. There's like a biracial person here. Yeah, you
0: know? <laughs> it's weird that first hit you get, you're like, I need to do this again. <laughs> like it becomes yeah, it, it like, becomes like crazy. Okay,
1: like I didn't know yeah, I should be looking for you. So, <laughs> um, so that was that was the thing, you know. And then uh, I was just in places where I moved to Cincinnati for a minute, mm-hmm. and I started noticing there were more interracial couples. Like there was a little further south, and I saw that that was happening there, and I was like, you know, I need to find a place where I'll connect with more people of mixed backgrounds, but then it didn't really happen until I started getting online and looking for those groups. Yeah. So, you know, long and I know how are we supposed
0: justified. to find each other? Just go out on the streets and be like mixed folks. Right.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah. Like, you? How, do you, how do you know where they are? So, yeah. So yeah. that really, it's really been a, it's really been a positive thing to, to start just accepting that, yeah, there are people out there. You got to go look for them. Yeah. And connect with them.
0: That's the, what I think is the most positive thing about the internet. I mean, obviously there are difficulties with how we maneuver life now because of the internet, but what I think is the most positive is it adjoins communities that probably didn't even know we needed a community of similar people until like, you think like if you're into sports, you need sports friends. And if you are into movies, you need movie friends or whatever, but It's not like we're out here really realizing that there could be some healing um, in having other mixed people, even if we're not mixed the same. I mean, that's been the biggest thing for me is realizing how much similarities I have with other mixed people more Mm -hmm. so or more relatable than when I'm speaking to a monoracial person of either of my ethnic groups, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. because I find that even speaking like what has the most crossover or the deepest connection for me is if i meet other black hood folks it doesn't matter what hood we come from there is a similarity there and once we identify that in each other there's a comfort in 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 sort of that thing um but then specifically to to meet other mixed people it was i was hood during the week and i was this on the weekend i was this other thing on the weekends and that was wild to me to <laughs> so like when you know because I was Japanese when I went to my grandma's house but I was black when I was everywhere else and even though mm-hmm. we're white also the only white I've ever been around was my British grandmother until I moved to the white suburbs when I was 15 and so by that point I'm I'm deeply black and a little bit Japanese you know like so there was mm-hmm. no it was way too late for me to feel identify. It like, felt feel like I could identify with white folks And then on top of it, the way I look, I'm never going to be confused as a white person. You know, I have to I have to tell people that I'm white, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. they can accept whatever brown they think I am. But I have to try to convince them, like, here's a picture of me with this white lady I'm related (laughs) to, you know. Um, And I feel like the more that I've met other people who have sort of an ambiguous appearance like you and I have. It's just like, does this, you know, it's one of those things where, like, you don't want to get into re traumatizing people, but you you just for your own thing, you're like, does this happen to you when such and such and such? And then you get these moments of, like, yes, why do they do that? That feeling has been so ridiculously helpful to get through Mm -hmm. some of the things that were really like, I didn't even know how to talk about it because. In therapy, when you try to explain it to a monoracial therapist who doesn't come from any of your communities there, they got no way to help you deal with that. And really just having these weekly conversations on the on the Zoom with other mixed people, random little things like that happen. And it's amazingly helpful to just release some of that some of that stuff. Um, yeah. And I think like you, that that feeling that you discussed about um when after um, the social injustice stuff that was becoming more evident in June versus any other time that we've existed, (laughs) um, (laughs) that that was starting to like, I think what it was is seeing that people were actually finally starting to pay attention and hoping that I was going to last longer was the thing of like, I I need to get in there. I need to get in and do more work, even though I feel like I've been trying, but it seemed like it was Mm -hmm. starting to, to be more effective. I think once um, I hate to say it like this mainstream once it became like more mainstream to to deal with it. Do you feel like now that you have started to connect with more mixed people that you're not related to that, like your mixed identity is becoming more evident versus your partially black or partially white identity?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It's, um, it's a really just organic feeling of, uh, being much more like, this is my family, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I mean, mom and dad, if you're watching, I love you. is <laughs> <laughs> not like that. But, uh, but, uh, but really it's like the people that I, you can have the most intimacy with in certain ways are people who really can understand the things that you've gone through. Yeah. And, you know, and that just feels like it's going to be, you know, the mixed community so and, and those are the things that i've felt when i've heard their you know expressions of their experiences and you know they've heard mine and all that so mm-hmm. i mean it really is like that's in the forward right now yeah. you know that the mixed identity is really yeah. in the forefront um and that's that just feels the most natural I mean, if I had to pick one I could tell you which one it was but,
0: uh, but <laughs> right
1: but, but uh yeah but I mean but it's it's definitely like what if I can have the mixed space like that's what I am you know I'm yeah. I'm a and I'm I'm with the mixed people and that's where I feel at home
0: yeah I I think that's become more obvious to me with time um I I don't I think I wish I could understand whiteness better. Um, I feel like I have a responsibility to because of like, I don't know, because I put so much effort into my blackness. I put so much learning and effort into my japanese Um, I can't seem to bring myself to do it though too much with my whiteness. Um, and it makes me itchy <laughs> to to do that. But also I have a different relationship with my family in that it is they were there when i was younger and they weren't great some of them like some of the people that i i grew up around um but it becomes this very complicated aspect of our mixedness of when we actually do love our parents and we we did have a generally decent childhood but as adults we realize oh there was some shit i needed that y'all didn't prepare you know help me with or prepare me for and part yeah. of it is they also their parents also didn't do that for them probably i mean right. it's not like you're always sitting at the dinner table in your monoracial black family being like, man, black, right. You know, you know, it's not like that stuff is happening. I definitely don't think white people are doing it. Not, and not,
1: not the good ones, <laughs> you know,
0: and then, uh, and, and then when you, when you, ex- when you're just growing up and you're, you're different from your parents, they just think your experience is going to mirror theirs. So I think your father probably thought you're a white kid and your mom probably thought you're a black kid and, They were raising you with those feelings because that's what they came from. Mm -hmm. And I think as we're learning now, there is actual work that you can do from the jump, like from the youngest of ages that would help them with their identity and allowing them to be an individual from the parent identity.
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, that's probably hard for parents in general to just say like, you're very different from me and I'm going to have to deal with that like they'd rather just feel like you're you're mine you know you're one of
0: mm-hmm.
1: one of mine right so I mean that was part of it I'm sure is and then part of it a lot of it was just what you said that they didn't it wasn't something that they were taught or it wasn't yeah. the way that their parents treated them or their parents also I know from my parents it's everybody I guess but I know specifically the ways in which my parents felt like they were uh, they had sort of their parents stuff imposed upon them mm-hmm. And it wasn't racial stuff you know
0: but it was but just, it was
1: life. just other, you know, other life things occupation or like religion or whatever so it's just like you know we're not going to do that to you we're not mm-hmm. going to do the same things our parents did but we're not aware of this other thing right. that you're dealing with
0: yeah so sitting sitting in where you're at now you're you're The majority of your book is written or is it is it all the way written
1: at this? point? Yeah, the whole thing is written. I'm just doing some editing and and revising and while I'm out shopping for agents and all that. Okay, but yeah.
0: So you're you've you've basically have done some work. You have written your book. You've done some personal work. I mean, you've written your book. You're sitting in this socially distanced world trying to figure out how how to um get your book out where do you feel like right now has has your identity altered at all because of writing the book has your has your mission mm-hmm. changed at all like your general life mission changed at all because of it
1: yeah i think so i mean so I, a big part of writing the book was for myself to better crystallize the mm-hmm. The understanding of who I was, um, a lot of it was a part of it was coming out this summer that hadn't come out for a long time. And so that was something that I wanted to flesh out even further and just let mm-hmm. some of those emotions come out more freely. hmm. Um, but then I also wanted to understand it, like to go, because like I, I mentioned really briefly the first 10 years of my life that I, which was where I spent most of the time with my black family, which is where I lived in a much more diverse uh, area and neighborhood and everything like that. Like I had forgotten that whole like decade Mm -hmm. of my life. Mm -hmm. And, and when I went back and wrote the book and I started going back in there and having to remember things that happened, I was like, wow, I totally just like shelved all of this stuff. Yeah. dealing with the next 10, you know, 10 years or whatever. And, um, and that in itself was like reconnecting with a part of my identity, just remembering who I was like, that was why, did, why everything until age 10 disappears. And then, you know, I can deal with the next eight years, you know, until I left high school or whatever. And that's somehow who I am is like, mm-hmm. you know, th- those years that I spent um you know trying to figure out myself as an adolescent and a teenager is like no I had all this other life before that right and um you know and so let me let it all be there at the same mm-hmm. time and that's what's happened really with writing the book is that it's all more present which is what I wanted to happen is I wanted it all to be in that like real um you know conglomeration of the things that I've experienced versus just the things I remember because they were too hard or you know there were the things I was dealing with um let me put it all into the picture and see it together so I think in that way like it's definitely made me more comfortable with just what I really am you know yeah and um and the black part of me specifically like I can say that like you know that was something that Definitely got its voice this summer more so yeah. Yeah. Um, because I felt more permission to do it. Um, And uh, and then I was going back and delving into more of my experience growing up with black family and all that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's important. And whether or not any of us produce something, you know, record a podcast, write a book, make a documentary, whatever it is, I think that investigation, that internal investigation is an important process for us at all. Um, using this time particular in particular is probably, you know, good opportunity to, to, to get into that when you don't necessarily have to be out in the world, like suffering after you have like dealt with some trauma or whatever. Yeah. Um, I think it's a good time for it. I think it, I think also because we get to do this now, Hopefully, future generations of mixed people, whether they're mixed people that come from us or you know mixed people who happen to find us, um our books or podcasts or whatever, get to feel more normal. I mean, I remember there being real times when I literally didn't feel normal, and that's because, again, I'm centering everybody else's experience over my own, which I think is a very human thing to do. We mm-hmm. were' it's really hard, and you said something like this, too. Uh, I remember there being feelings when I was um, resisting doing the podcast that I wanted to do. And that was, I'm one person in 7 billion. What do I matter? Um, you know, on this planet, why do I matter? And ultimately, I know that I connect when I hear someone's personal story, that there's a nugget that I can connect with. And that becomes valuable to me, not realizing that in doing it, I was going to become that nugget for somebody else, you know, possibly that that's still something that is weird and I'm learning to get more comfortable with it. But I think it's important that we get into it, regardless of how we enter it, writing the book, doing a podcast, doing docs. I think these things are... (laughs) Right. It's a service to our community, which I think is what is militantly mixed. It's it's about service to our community and in the process being very healing for us, which I think is great. So I'm glad that you've been through that process. But we are getting close to the end. So I do like wow. to ask all of my it goes by fast, right?
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, what is it that you love most about being mixed?
1: Um, that it let me get the perspective that I have. um that I really conclude with like after I've gone through this book and, you know, felt comfortable with having that perspective. Now it's, it's just, I feel, I feel enabled to relate to a lot of different people's life experiences. Mm. Um, Not that I have gone through their experiences necessarily, but there's like, I have more of like a, a a grayscale, um, you know, color palette to work with, where I feel very comfortable in that space Mm. of looking at things that aren't black and white and, you know, people, um, you know, having a very different experience of life than, than what's portrayed. Mm. And I, you know, in the mainstream, and I, I feel much more comfortable with that and very at home with it and, um, and able to talk about it with people. And Mm -hmm. so there were, I mean, most of my book is probably about painful things, to be honest with you. (laughs) You (laughs) so (laughs) I'm not going to sugarcoat that, but, uh, and I wouldn't have asked for any of it. Like there's no, I don't have any of that sort of like, you know, well, it was just, you know, it was good because it brought me to who I am. am. Yeah. Yeah, I hate that too. (laughs) No, no, that's not, that is not my feeling about it at all. Right. But, but now I'm here um, that that's, you know, it allows me to, I think, see things more from both sides, so to speak. Like I have, you know, some perspective on what it's like to be black in America Mm -hmm. and some perspective on what it's like to be white and some perspective on what it's like to be sort of non-binary in some part of your identity. And, you know, it just feels like I have, um, you know, more opportunity to really intimately connect with people in different ways. And I really love that.
0: Yeah, that's great. Uh, Why don't you let everybody know how they can find and follow you so that they can be aware when the book comes out and everything.
1: Yeah, thanks. So um, Marginal Eyes is the name of the book. Um marginaleyesbook.com. I've got a landing page up there right now. It's, you know, not to purchase it, but I've got some excerpts from the book up there. There's a place where people can drop their email address and then I'll send them a note when the book does get published. And um, if you want to connect with me on social media, it's at the marginal eyes for Twitter or Instagram. I do post um, Instagram videos where I talk about some topics from the book and stuff. So please feel free to reach out to me or connect with me there. Anybody who happens to be interested. Cool.
0: Well, thank you so much for doing this and thank you for joining the group. I think um, uh, it's like I didn't expect to have a weekly therapy group (laughs) when I started it. It was really just to hang out and it has become a a very supportive environment that I think is is somewhat therapeutic. So uh, thank you for being a part of that.
1: Thank you for having it. And thank you for having me here. And I'm grateful for you. So happy to talk to you today. Thank you.
0: militantly mixed is a main hustle media podcast produced and hosted by me charmaine fury music is by david bogan the one you can follow us on social media on twitter instagram and facebook at militantly mixed